Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is December the 28th, 2022. In these final days of the year, we're doing some reviews of what's happened in 2022. How we're going to remember the year, quite a year, like probably most years. Uh, if I was to give an award for the most cumber cumbersomely named um, act, it would be Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Of course, he sells it strongly, he believes, according at least to this White House uh, fact sheet, that it supports workers and families. I don't doubt that. Uh, but it's certainly oddly named. And of course, it reflects the obsession in 2022 with inflation, with its impact on economics and our personal wealth and our sense of economic well-being. It seems as if by the end of the year, um, the forest fire of inflation is being controlled. Uh, some people believe that it's going to drop to 3% by the end of 2023. It's still not entirely clear, although what we can say for sure is that inflation will define not just the economy of 2022, but of 2023 too. When it comes to monetary policy, my go-to guy this year has been uh, the best-selling writer Christopher Leonard. Uh, he's been on the show a couple of times talking about his new book, The Lords of Easy Money, a, a critique of Federal Reserve and its monetary policy. Uh, he was on in February, and then he was on again in June, middle of June, uh, at the high point, I think, of American um, inflation of 2022, talking uh, about Federal Reserve policy. And Chris is back today. Uh, Chris, welcome. In Thank overall you. terms, let's not go over what we already talked about, uh, Chris. At the end of 2022, are you as critical of the Federal Reserve as you have been uh, throughout the year? Or, or have they, in overall terms, got it right by the end of the year when it comes to taming inflation? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I'm still extremely critical of the Fed. I think it's fair to say, I mean, the subtitle of my book is How the Fed Broke the American Economy. And that's a story that took place over 10 years, between 2010 and 2020. And, you know, what the Fed has done in 2022, I'm not saying that they've just made horrendous mistakes at every turn. We can, we can talk about what they did, what they did right this year, what they did wrong this year. But the, the point I keep trying to make again and again is that we're still dealing with the mess the Fed has made over the last 10 years with these ultra easy money policies, with, you know, zero percent interest rates that have stoked all these risky asset bubbles and all these uh, record levels of debt. This is a mess that the Fed has been trying to deal with as it tries to fight inflation. So I, I remain exactly as critical uh, of the Fed in that way, as I did, you know, when I wrote the book. And I, I, I think what's in interesting to me is how I see the sort of same mistakes repeated again. Uh, the, the sort of DNA remains consistent between the last decade and today. And what I mean by that is, you know, you flashed a headline that says that there's a projection that uh, rather that inflation rates will be down to 3% next year. And 
I'm sorry to say it just kind of makes me laugh because reporting what the Fed has done over the last decade, you see time and time again that the central bank is making these assumptions that the everything will be getting back to normal or that the trend line will revert to the mean, as they say. And, you know, the Fed has been frustrated again and again that reality just doesn't cooperate. We've got a long way to go before we get back to 3% inflation. Uh, so, you know, just kind of counting on that happening by the end of next year is not a guaranteed bet. One of the other big stories, Chris, of 2022 is the collapse of crypto captured metaphorically as a almost a parody or at least a parable by Sam Bankman-Fried and the, the circus at FTX. I know you believe that it's no coincidence that we have uh, the crypto the mania of crypto at the same time as the easy money of the of the Federal Reserve policy. How, how are they connected? Here's how I see them connected. For 10 years, the Fed took these extraordinary actions. It kept interest rates at zero for nearly a decade. I can't overstate how unprecedented that is. And at the same time, the Fed pumped about $3.5 trillion into the banking system which the way I put it is that's about 350 years worth of money creation in a few short years. Okay. All of this had the effect of pushing Wall Street. And by that, I don't just mean private equity and hedge funds. I mean conservative pools of money like insurance companies and pension funds. It, the Fed was pushing Wall Street to make riskier and riskier investments. It's, it's this... Uh, a force that they call a search for yield, okay? The Fed was making sure you couldn't safely save money because interest rates were so low. And all of this tidal wave of cash just flushed out into the economy looking for any, any yield it could get. And that it pumped up asset prices for these risky debt instruments like corporate junk debt, commercial mortgage-backed securities, tech stocks like Tesla stock, and these you know, speculative exotic instruments we call cryptocurrencies. That was another place where investors thought that they could uh, make a lot of yield when they couldn't earn that yield through safe measures like, you know, treasury bonds. So, you know, to me, the big story of the last decade has been the Fed pumping up all these risky assets. And crypto, in, in my view, is just another one of those assets. You mentioned Tesla. Another big story this year on the tech front has right. been uh, Elon Musk's $44 billion, I think, dollar acquisition of Twitter. I still don't quite understand where he got the cash from. And it's not, of course, cash. It's the promise of cash. Is there a connection between all that? The, the, the Musk mania, um, the way he's become an absurdly rich man, a man beyond any conception of, 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 of wealth, certainly in the past, and the Fed's easy money? Without question. And and I think it comes in two ways. Look, the, the Fed, I just described them pushing all of this cash into riskier sectors of the economy. As investors are looking for yield, the Fed is pumping up asset bubbles. Okay, another way to state that is that the Fed was putting the pedal to the metal over the last decade with easy money and, and, what, and the Fed knew that what that was going to do is pump up asset prices. 
And, and what the Fed was hoping would happen is that as asset prices rose, it would kind of create economic growth through a trickle-down effect. They call it the wealth effect. Like if you and I know that our 401ks are up and our house is worth a lot of money, we might go spend more money. Okay. But this has this sort of secondary effect of making the rich richer than ever before. You know, 1% of Americans own roughly 40% of all the nation's assets. The bottom half of Americans own roughly 5% of the assets. So what that means is that guys like Elon Musk, who own a ton of assets, you know, their wealth is in stock, uh, a lot of stock in his case, or real estate, what have you. The value of those assets has, has simply exploded since 2010 because of the Fed's actions, even as the real economy is sort of like stagnating or, or really staggering to the side low productivity, low economic growth, virtually no wage growth. This is the environment that the Fed has created. But, you know, the second part of this, it's, it's not just that guys like Elon have gotten richer and richer as the Fed has helped pumped up their assets. It, it's that the, the sort of mania, the search for yield has made Tesla stock explode in value because People are looking for, for any kind of promise of return that they can get. And, and that's why these stock prices got so high. Elon Musk became the richest man in the world. You know, Jeff Bezos, I'm sure, was not too far behind him. In my mind, the story of 2022 has been the story of the Fed ending the party. You know, inflation exploded this year. And thing, so we, we, we should, I mean, I know you're very critical of Jerome Powell, but... Uh, I mean, he, he, I don't think everyone, many people would disagree with you that he certainly made mistakes in the past. But can we argue that in 2022, he's come to his senses? <laughs> I look, man, I'm not trying to just pick on this guy. <laughs> but the way I look at 2022 is inflation exploded and it's like the it's like a fire at the back of the fed pushing the fed toward a ledge and and that ledge is a giant asset price collapse um i guess jerome powell could have kept interest rates at zero and could have kept pumping money into wall street um through quantitative easing even as inflation was at like nine percent and then we would have had inflation at 16 or 17 percent before too long but there was tremendous pressure on the Fed to fight inflation. I mean, it's kind of unimaginable that they would have let, you know, this, they would have kept easy money in place as inflation was so out of control. So, you know, Jay Powell responded by dramatically tightening the money supply. He quit doing quantitative easing. He hiked interest rates from uh, roughly zero to about 4.25%, maybe 4.5% right now. Huge jump, historic jump. And so I don't, I mean, again, I'm not trying to pick on him. I don't know if he came to his senses as much as I mean, there's a giant fire and they're trying to turn on the fire hose to put it out without causing a huge um, collapse in the markets. And they're finding the job to be very difficult. I don't want to speak on behalf of Powell. Uh, that would be inappropriate. And I, I don't have his knowledge of the financial system. But isn't one argument, Chris, to counter yours, that had they done nothing in 2009, 2010, 2011, that they would have got the Japanese disease of deflation, of a, a shrinking economy. 
I mean, whatever one says about Powell, the, the economics of the teens, of the 20 teens, weren't catastrophic, certainly compared to Japan. Well, okay. So, you know, hmm. I started reporting my book with that kind of mindset. I mean, I, I really wanted to just describe the magnitude of what the Fed has done, that 350 years worth of money printing in a few years and what a huge change it had. But I walked into this thinking that, like, the Fed basically had no choice. I mean, I would not have wanted to be uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve in 2008 when the global financial crisis hit. But my view honestly kind of hardened against the Fed's decision making as I reported this book. And and one way I'd put that is this book starts in late 2010. That's really important. When the global financial crisis hit in 08 and and it really started to gather steam in like mid 2008 and then it exploded in late 2008. The Fed did what it was supposed to do. It stepped in in case of emergency and it used its fire hose of creating new money to the ultimate effect. Okay, I don't I don't think there are very many people who'd say the Fed should not have done that. The real story in my mind starts in late 2010 when the economy is beginning a slow recovery. No one at the Fed in late 2010 expected that we're heading into a recession. What they decided to do was take this proactive stance of trying to juice economic growth through quantitative easing, which is just a fancy term for massive money printing, flushing uh, trillions of dollars into the banking system. And saving the bank. And one of the things that I think is worth underlining is that saving the banking system was also saving the bankers. Uh, so it was a it was a policy that benefited the wealthy rather than the poor. Without question. I mean, I, it's one of the things I, I write about. You know, after the Great Depression, one of the first things the Roosevelt administration did when it took office in the early 30s was to shut down the banks. Uh, they called it a holiday, but it was a bank shutdown. They nationalized the most crippled banks that had extended the most toxic debt. They spun off the bad debt. They reopened the new banks. And then they did massive structural reform the famous Glass-Steagall Act that was sort of like this Old Testament division of the banking system into speculative and commercial. We didn't do any of that in 08 and 09. We did not do any structural reform, so we left the too-big-to-fail banks in place, and we just bailed them out. But then, again, the program I'm talking about that, frankly, I've become very critical of are these easy-money policies starting in late 2010 when we, we tried to do economic growth through money printing through the banks, and it just dramatically widened the wealth gap for reasons we've talked about, it did not help the real economy that much. Wage growth was flat. uh, Overall economic growth was anemic. Productivity growth was anemic. Uh, They basically just helped pump up the stock market and enrich uh, the richest of the rich. When you came on the show in June, you linked the inflationary crisis, which it was in June, it isn't now, uh, with what we called our democratic crisis. Do you see, uh, before we get to 2020, do you see the the success of Trump in the context of the mistakes that, in your view at least, that Powell made at the, at the Federal Reserve? 
Well, and, and, and one point I need to make quickly, please, is that Ben Bernanke was chairman of the Fed. Right. I apologize. Yeah. No, no. I, I just want to be clear. And so Bernanke really drove this train. And Jay Powell, you know, Janet Yellen became chairwoman of the Fed, I think, in late 2014. Yeah, 2014. Okay. And so then Powell gets in with Trump in 2017. So Yellen and Yellen was right beside Bernanke pushing these policies. Powell kind of inherited this mess. And I show how he was actually a huge critic of these easy money policies when he first arrived, but then he came to embrace them. Okay. To back up, no, I don't blame Trump on the Fed. I These are all facets of the kind of the same disease. You know, one big thing I try to talk about in the book is the decline of our democratic institutions, the increasing, you know, dysfunction, and I've got to say it, corruption of Congress and the inability of the White House to deal with that. As our democratically controlled institutions are kind of mired in dysfunction, we're relying on our more undemocratic institutions, the Supreme Court to handle, you know, public policy issues, the military to handle foreign affairs, the, the Federal well, Reserve. But, but I mean, to be fair to Bernanke, I mean, he was working with then President Obama. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't operating as a cowboy. here. He was operating as a cowboy. I feel 100 percent confident in saying that Ben Bernanke was an absolutely unrestrained experimenter in monetary policy. I, I just can't overstate how unprecedented quantitative easing was. Uh, and, and the decision, which was Bernanke's conscious decision to keep interest rates pinned at zero for so many years, has an extraordinarily high impact on financial markets. Okay, so uh, let's, uh, we, we, you and I, have, you, you've been on the show before, and, and yeah. I think your critique of Bernanke is an important one, but let's fast forward to 2020. Yeah, yeah. Bernanke, when, when now Powell is head of the Federal Reserve, and this connection between the inflationary crisis and our democratic crisis, the fact that it's been at least seems in, in, in late December 2022 to be controlled is good for democracy. I mean, many of our analysts of American democracy from... Pete Weiner from The Atlantic was on the show, Jonathan Rash. They're all cautiously optimistic about the future of American democracy. Is one reason for that because inflation has been brought under control and monetary policy is becoming more coherent and reasonable? Well, uh, I, would, I would backpedal a little bit and say that during the COVID crisis, we saw more action from our fiscal authorities than we've seen in a long, long time. And that's under both Trump and Biden. The CARES Act was an enormous fiscal stimulus act uh, that dwarfed anything that happened after 0809. Was that a mistake uh, in your view, the CARES Act? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. I'm going to it's it's a darn big act that had a lot of pieces. I criticize a lot of pork, the, that's for sure, right? Yeah, and I criticize in the book how a lot of the money as I say the money had to flow through the plumbing system we have. And the plumbing system to get money to humans and small businesses 
is not a great system. The money to get from the Fed to Wall Street is like a smooth running uh, bullet train. But uh, so a lot of the money didn't necessarily make it to small businesses. It got scooped up by like Cheesecake Factory. But look, I, I am. I do think it's a good idea. If we'd been putting money in the hands of average people in the 2010s who would have spent the money uh, at the hardware store instead of giving it to the big banks to you know invest in junk debt, I actually think it would have had a much better economic effect. So I think uh, there's a lot in the CARES Act and that approach through the fiscal authorities. Yes, I support it. It's a much better way to tackle a problem than through the central bank. So, so in that way, to see Congress really step up and act as they did, and heck, we could have done more in terms of like- And this was government. Trump's Congress. I mean, this was not uh, Joe Biden's Congress. It was Trump's Congress. Biden came in and carried it forward in a very serious way, did another round of stimulus of $2 trillion, you know- there, there's a huge school of thought criticizing that for stoking inflation, but it, geez, you know, fiscal action from democratic institutions like Congress is far preferable to the Fed just pumping more money into Wall Street. So yes, I, I, I support what the CARES Act did. Just Congress, Congressing again, doing legislation again is is healthy. I think that's a really good sign. Um, Okay, so so that is true. But at the same time, listen, I'm not trying to just be uh, Cassandra here. I think it's way too early to say inflation's under control. We have had some fantastic data in the second half of the year of inflation coming down. Wonderful news. Almost certainly um, credited to the Federal Reserve raising rates, you know, if the Fed can hold interest rates where they are today and inflation just continues to decline steadily through next year, that is going to be a wonderful outcome. Um, Jay Powell will probably get a lot of credit for that. Uh, we, we have to see what happens. And, and I've really got to raise this Cassandra-like point right now. Powell is talking about putting interest rates at 5% and then holding them there in 2023. We haven't lived in a 5% interest rate world since 2007. This thing has not shaken out yet. You can't, make it the... ways, Chris. you can't be critical of him for, you can't be critical of Bernanke for making the interest rate zero and then being critical of Powell for raising it to five. I mean, you have one or the other. Oh, I'm, I'm not being critical of Powell. I'm not saying, oh my God, this Powell should have kept interest rates at zero. If he had done that, as I said, inflation would be at like 16 or 17 percent right now. That would be bad. That really hurts working people because wages never keep up with inflation. And retired people in particular. hundred percent. hundred percent. I'm not saying Powell's made a mistake. What I'm saying is that for you and me and the rest of us kind of sitting in the bleachers, trying to live in the American economy, we have not seen the full impact of 5 percent interest rates yet. And... We've got to watch this play out in 2023. We, that 5%. Where, where's the pain? Well, I mean, what's the worst case, Chris, on, on this? Let's say you've, 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 you've described yourself as Cassandra. So, so yep. become a Cassandra for us. What, what could go really wrong if Powell keeps interest rates at 5% in 2023? What are the worst, the darkest consequences of all this? Okay. 
Um, not to be self-promotional or whatever, but I did an article. In you're Politico. never self-promotional. You'd be more <laughs> pro. I'm, you're allowed on this show to be self-promotional. Well, I, if you Google Christopher Leonard, uh, Politico magazine, Jay Powell, and the word pain, you come up with this. I know. Okay. Oh. I, I did. I did this article, I think like in September ish, where I tried to lay out in three bullet points what the bad case here is, like where the pain could be most dramatically felt. And I'll give you two quick examples right now. Um, over a decade, the Fed, through these easy money policies, pumped up the market for corporate debt. Corporate debt um, almost doubled between 2010 and 2020, um, the the riskier forms of corporate debt, meaning corporate junk debt that's really low rated, that is packaged into these covenant-like collateralized loan obligations that are a lot like subprime home loan packages. You know, these debt structures just ballooned over the last, last decade. And these debt structures of corporate junk debt Leverage loans, collateralized loan obligations. Just picture it like a like a, a shaky foundation on a beach that is about to face a very high tide of five percent. Right, interest and this piece you you mentioned, uh, I found it's from Politico from um, twenty uh, from September of this year. The Fed is is getting even tougher on inflation. Here's what to watch first. So it's an important piece. So go on. These are the areas where we're going to see a lot of pain. Um, corporate junk debt. Loans are going to fail because these highly leveraged borrowers are going to have to go back into the market to keep their loans going. And they're going to face 5% interest rates instead of a half or 1%. So we're going to see corporate, and they're going to we're going to see corporate bankruptcy, you expect, in 2023? Corporate bankruptcy which then translates into falling prices of corporate debt. People aren't going to want to keep buying this rotten debt when things are defaulting. So when those prices of the corporate bonds fall, the banks are going to be put in a squeeze and they're going to have losses. How much? You know, 2023 is probably going to tell us if rates stay high, okay? So it's corporate defaults and then losses to the big banks, um, the banks are already experiencing big losses because treasury bonds prices are falling because the Fed is tightening. Um, don't want to get too far into the weeds on that. Hey, let's just look at the the federal debt, uh, which is very. Right, you know, high. one of the things that occurs to me in, in talking to you about this is one yeah. of one of the main. This is the right word: tragedies, or certainly problems with the Trumpification of the Republican Party is there's no longer a political party now warning us about debt because the Republicans have become so obsessed with Trump's nonsense. There no longer is a, a common sense economic party. The, the, the Democrats are doing what the Democrats have always done, which is prioritize spending. Is, is one of the reasons for this potential crisis, Chris, the, the political vacuum of a a sensible Main Street political party, a central Main Street economic 
a message from uh, from from the traditional Republican style party? Without question, and I I, I have to point out the re the, the Republican Party has lost all credibility on the issue of debt. It was George W. Bush who blew a hole in our budget through the tax cuts of 01 through 03. Um, it was actually, you know, the Obama administration that came in and, and was, you know, tried to bring the debt down as the, you know, there's this cycle. Republicans increase debt through tax cuts. A Democrat takes office. The Republicans are all of a sudden hyper concerned about debt. They attack Obama on debt. Then Trump becomes president and passes more tax cuts and, and builds our structural debt to new levels. I mean, in 2019, when things were as good as they're going to be for a long time, we were running a trillion dollars in deficits a year when the economy was growing, thanks in large part to the Trump tax cuts. And so the credibility is lost because now the cycle will come in with the Republicans taking over Congress and complaining about debt again. And it's just seen as a political bludgeon that they use against Democrats. And I really don't like the the point of view of, oh, my gosh, a pox on both of the houses. But, you know, Democrats tend to not get agitated about debt because they see it as a conservative issue. And, and Democrats want to push, uh, you know, more social programs and safety net programs. And, the, you know, I don't need to tell you the discussion around taxes is just insane. Uh, you can't even really talk about taxes uh, anymore in this country in, in like a reasonable way. There's this group called the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget or CURFBA. They've been like diligent. Yeah, we actually we had the, the CEO on the show. Uh, so, Chris, for people watching this who are suddenly getting nervous about this possible crisis. I mean, it, it would result in a stock market crash, um, the collapse of confidence in, in corporate America, all the ingredients that created, I guess, the great crash of the late 20s. If people believe you, what should they do? Put their money under the bed? I mean, it's the reverse of inflation. Suddenly, cash is king. Yeah, and... When it comes to like financial advice, uh, I'm no good on that. I am honestly just a reporter. I'm extremely conservative. I, you know, I don't mess with stocks because you can't try to You're time the market. You're a typical and... Kansan, Chris. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know enough to know I'm on the fifth or seventh ring of understanding about the market. Okay. Well, you, the you've given us the still... worst case scenario, which. It's chilling. Maybe it's realistic. Maybe it isn't. But what would you like Powell to do in 2023 to try to avoid this? What policies would you like him to pursue? Well, and at the risk of just like trying to reaffirm myself, I don't think I'm giving like a pessimistic outcome. I, I feel like I'm describing uh hydraulic level physics, if the Fed raises interest rates to 5% and keeps them there, necessarily we will see a decline in asset markets for stocks, corporate bonds, all the rest of it. Federal debt will become way more expensive. We're going to put more and more of our budget toward paying off our debt. Like That's just math. And if the Fed keeps rates higher, that's a world we're going to be living in. Um, 
look, what should Powell do? Um, I am, I look, the main character of the book is this guy, Tom Honig. I'm, I clearly admire this guy a lot. The more I hear him, the more sense he makes to me. And a lot of what he talks about is just moving with humility and an understanding that what you do is going to have long and variable lag effects. So what, what I mean is, uh, you know, Jay Powell, once he gets rates to the level he, where he thinks they need to be, should probably just keep them there and let the system shake out. And, and the Fed going forward should respond with more restraint and humility. What they did in the 2010s was just okay, we're, we're not in the, I, I take your point on the 2010s, but as you say, they seem to have come to their senses. In a, in a way, is he like Sully landing the plane, Chris? Dude, I do not think the Fed has come to their senses. Uh, let me be totally clear about that. They were off of their senses in the COVID crash and in the year that followed when they were pumping $120 billion into Wall Street a month. Um, when they exploded the balance sheet from 3.5 to $9 trillion. That is not being at their senses. They're not at their senses. They're like in crisis mode right now as they try to fight inflation. Are they like Sully trying to land a plane? Jay Powell, um, I don't have this directly from him, but a guy who talks to him says, Jay Powell has described this as trying to land a 747 on an aircraft carrier. Like it... What they're trying to do is raise rates to the level that it it slows inflation down and then makes inflation fall without sparking a financial crisis. It's a narrow path. It's extraordinarily narrow because what the Fed has done, and we're going to see how it goes in 2023. What what indicators would there be, Chris, if for people very nervous about what you're saying, it makes complete sense. What would be the, the early indicators that, that the storm is brewing. Um, I I don't like to follow the stock market, but you know, you're going to see continued declines in stock prices, and you're going to hear talk about, you know, the, look, right now Wall Street thinks Jay Powell is not going to keep rates high. They think he's going to blink next year. That's why the market started to in, improve in October. And it has risen somewhat, although it's still down for the year. People are going to see stock market prices fall and continue to fall. I would really keep an eye on stories in the Wall Street Journal about corporate debt and um, corporate bonds failing, corporate defaults, and collateralized loan obligations on the bank's balance sheets. I'll tell you what I watch a lot are stories about the treasury bill market. And I know that this all sounds really obscure, but you know the market for U.S. debt is going to be affected as interest rates rise. Um, when, we start, when you start reading stories about volatility in the treasury market, that's a big red sign. And we've seen that in 2022. Um, just the basic seesaw dynamic, high rates are going to cause uh, the decline of everything that low rates pumped up. And so uh, keep an eye on that general dynamic. Are there economists... Um who you read, who you would advise. I mean, people should read your book, of course, and listen to what you say. But Rubini was very influential in the teens or before, before the Great Recession. 
Uh, are there economists, you think, Adam too, for example, seems to be pretty smart, who, who get this, who understand, who are able to read through the political nonsense, the noise? Yeah. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of Adam Tooze. Um, you know, Nouriel Rabini is really smart. Um, Mohammed El Aryan is smart. But listen, those are the guys who tend to kind of agree with what I'm saying. Are they in your camp? Are they all predicting a, a, a potential collapse, a corporate crisis, uh, an economic crisis in 2023, 2024? I would never want to like advertise those guys as being in, in in my camp or anything but if you follow rabini follow muhammad el aryan yes they are talking about this sort of these underlying risks um you know el aryan has a quote on 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 the back of the book and all that stuff so yeah these guys are saying that um there are very few people right now saying that like things are okay and smooth. I mean, maybe some people, you know, like press spokespeople for the White House or have to say that. But, you know, even Powell is saying, even Jay Powell is really trying to be clear, we're in for pain and he's going to keep rates high to fight inflation uh, regardless of the pain that's coming. 